thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. We are so thankful that you take the time to listen to our podcast, and we hope that you're blessed by are diving into God's Word. We, this summer, are continuing through the book of 1 Timothy, and it's been a while since our last podcast. There's been a lot of things going on this summer as far as camps and personal time away and meetings, and so I finally have an opportunity to get back and, and record this, and so let's just dive right in to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In our last podcast, we looked at the qualifications of elders and deacons. And so we're going to just look at this last section of chapter 3. This may be a little bit shorter of a podcast, but we want to look at this last section of chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in Glory. Now, these verses serve as a bridge between what should happen in a healthy church to addressing the threat of false teachers that are going to show up in chapter 4 that are going to disrupt a healthy church. So this is kind of a transition passage. It's a, it's a bridge between uh, healthy leaders, godly leaders, elders, and deacons in the church to chapter 4. Paul's going to go back to talking about false teachers. So this passage of Scripture uh, really refers to the church as a household, how one ought to behave in the household of God. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, Paul uses this terminology of a family, that the church is a family. It's a household. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been brought together under the lordship of Christ. And so there's a lot of metaphors that Paul uses to describe the church um, as a household, as a living temple, as God's building, as God's people. In Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, Paul says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are the household of God. And Paul says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, how you should conduct yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of 
the living God, the church of the living God. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's the pastor in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus was embroiled in pagan mythology, pagan gods and goddesses all over the place. They weren't real gods. They were dead idols. And so Paul reminds them, listen, we are members of the church of the, the living God. He would say this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We serve a living God, the true God. We are the church of God's people. He is the one true living God. And Paul describes the church the household of God, the household of the living God, as the pillar and buttress of the truth. The pillar and buttress of the truth, which means that the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, the truth of Jesus being the only way of salvation is foundational to the church and must always be protected by the church. That word buttress can mean protector or defender. We must always be defending the truth. In Jude, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we are the household of the living God. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth. We are brothers and sisters in Christ under the lordship of Christ. And so what Paul is, is laying forth for us is saying, listen, as a healthy church, this is how you ought to conduct yourselves. So let's just do a little bit of review. I know it may be a while since we, you've heard the last podcast, but we're just going to review um, chapter 2 and 3. In the context of the past two chapters in 1 Timothy, what have we seen that constitutes a healthy, vibrant church? Well, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, a healthy church is diligent in prayer. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, a healthy church is focused in evangelism. In chapter 2, verse 8, we have men taking the lead in prayer and godliness and integrity. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, we have women exemplifying godly dignity. In chapters 3, 1 through 13, we find qualified leaders in elders and deacons. In verse 15 here, we find a church understands that we are united under the living God. And we also teach truth and refute error by standing on God's word, the pillar and buttress of truth. So you may need to evaluate your church. 
I need to evaluate Emmanuel Baptist Church by this criteria that Paul has laid out, how we ought to conduct ourselves. So just ask yourself a question. If you're a pastor listening to this, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're a leader, or you're a church member, you're a lay person, and you're wanting to look at your particular church and ask the question, are we a healthy, vibrant church of the living God? Are we the pillar and buttress of truth? Ask yourself these questions. Are we a church of diligent prayer? Are we a church of focused evangelism? Are we a church that has men taking the leadership in godliness? Are we a church that have women being examples in godly dignity? Do you have qualified elders and deacons serving as leaders? Are you standing on the truth of God's word? Do you practice expository preaching where you systematically expose people to God's truth? Those are some evaluative questions we must ask in regards to are we being a healthy church, a pillar and buttress of truth, the household of faith, the church of the living God. Now, verse 16 is probably a early creed or an early hymn of Christian truth. And the ESV starts verse 16 with great indeed. Uh, The Greek word there is used only here in the New Testament It means undeniably. We make this undeniable confession. We confess this. We make this confession. This was probably a confession, a creed, an early hymn that circulated during the time when Paul was writing this. And so Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if this was an early creed, an early confession of faith, an early hymn that maybe the early church sang as a way to remind themselves of the glories of the gospel, the mysteries of godliness, what we see here are six gospel truths about Jesus. This is a Christological creed, a Christological hymn, meaning that it's centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so um, let's look at these six gospel truths about Jesus. First, he was manifested in the flesh. Well, this refers to the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus came as God in the flesh. The word incarnation really comes from Latin. Um, Carne is the word for flesh or body. Incarnation is a a Latin expression that Jesus came in the flesh. And you get that from uh, John 1.14. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus has always existed in eternity, past, as the eternal Son of God, not created, always existing, fully equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But there came a point in time where the Word became flesh. Jesus added humanity, flesh and blood, to His deity. Philippians 2, 7, and 8. 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this starts with this hymn, this creed, uh, he was manifested in the flesh, starts with Jesus leaving the glories of heaven and being born of the Virgin Mary, taking on flesh and blood as fully God and fully man, Jesus the God-man who came in the flesh. But secondly, it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, what is this referring to, that, that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit? This refers to God's stamp of approval on Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan River, where the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, anointed Jesus for public ministry, as well as vindicating Jesus' death by raising him from the dead. So there's this vindication by the Spirit that that God set his approval on Jesus at his baptism, and then God set his approval upon Jesus when he rose from the dead. And this was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, there's the incarnation again, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So two aspects of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus in particular is his baptism. When, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, God put his stamp of approval upon his son. This is my son and whom I'm, I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus or set Jesus apart for public ministry. And then after his death on the cross, the Holy Spirit is the one who powerfully rose Jesus from the grave. So he was vindicated by the Spirit. Number three, he was seen by angels. Now we know this happened at the resurrection. In John 20, 12 through 13, talking about Mary Magdalene, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. We know that the resurrected Christ was worshipped by angels at his resurrection. The angels announced the resurrection to Mary Magdalene. And so the risen Christ was seen by angels at the tomb. Number four, proclaimed among the nations. Now, the gospel was preached before his resurrection through the ministry of Jesus. Jesus went around preaching and teaching in the synagogues. He went around the countryside. We've got the Sermon on the Mount. We've got his sermon in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And so the gospel was proclaimed, but it was mainly just in the area 
of around Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Galilee, uh, the gospel did not spread out to the nations until what happened in the book of Acts. We know that after his resurrection, when Jesus ascends back up to the Father and pours out his Holy Spirit, then the gospel goes forth to the nations. What is some of the last words of Jesus? We have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. After the resurrection, at the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the church goes out in power, fueled by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus said in Luke 24, 46 through 48, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Okay, number five, he was believed on in the world. Now, this is the response of the preaching of the gospel, not just for the Jews, but for all tribes, nations, and peoples. When, when Christ's message of the gospel goes out in power, it's believed upon, and not just believed upon starting in Jerusalem, but Jesus says, you're to go to all the nations. And so Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've never believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul's argument is that there's a lot of people living in darkness right now who've never heard the name of Jesus, have never heard the gospel. And so preachers, missionaries, people need to be sent out to the nations, to unreached people groups, to people that have never heard the name of Christ so that they can hear because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so um, when the gospel goes forth to the nations, we have the promise that those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, the sheep, will hear the voice of the shepherd and they will come to Christ. There will be representatives from all tribes and nations and tongues coming to faith in Jesus as we see the end product there in Revelation chapter 5 where all nations are before the throne of 
the Lamb. And the very last thing in this ancient hymn or this ancient creed is that Jesus was taken up in glory. And obviously this refers to the ascension of Christ. Mark 16, 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. How does the book of Acts begin? Acts chapter 1, 10 through 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So I want you to think about what Paul does here. Why Paul inserts this ancient hymn or creed right after he's talked about the church being the pillar and buttress of truth, being the household of God. What Paul is saying is for the life of the church, a healthy church, a faithful church is centered upon the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and the command to all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's a reminder of the power of Christ, the message of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the centrality of Christ in the gospel, that a church rises and falls on how it stands fast on the truth the pillar and buttress of truth of that message of who Jesus is. So this transitional section here, verses 14 through 16, remember it's a transition between qualifications of elders and deacons before Paul moves into chapter 4 to again address false teachers. It really serves two purposes. Purpose number one, it's to remind us what a healthy church looks like that stands on the truth of God's word. Paul says, listen, I want you to understand, a healthy church is a pillar and buttress of truth. You're in the household of the living God. You need to stay and stand fast on the gospel. But the second purpose is to remind us in summary, in a hymn or a creed, what that essential truth is. And that's why we have creeds and confessions. You think about the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed. These, these short summary statements of doctrinal truth. And here we have an actual creed, a summary statement in the Bible-inspired text of who Christ is. I've heard people say over the years, no creed but the Bible. We just need to, be, we just need to believe the Bible. Why, why do we need to have a confession of faith? Why do we need to have a creed? Why do we need to have a statement of faith? Why can't we just believe the Bible? Well, that's a, that's a good sentiment, but I want to ask you a question deeper. Okay, let's just believe the Bible. Okay, what Jesus are we talking about? What truths are we articulating? Because you can get five people in a room and say, let's just believe the Bible and have all manner of different interpretations. A creed or a confession of faith 
unites a group of people around core central truths that have been articulated and written down in succinct fashion that clarify and define doctrinal truth so that there's no ambiguity, there's no um, fuzziness. And so, for example, our church just voted on a new statement of faith, Emmanuel's Confession of Faith. It's based primarily upon the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, probably 75% with some updated language. The other 25% is the good stuff, a lot of the modern stuff from the Baptist faith and message that deals with social issues related to the family and gender and marriage um, and things like that. And so the reason we have a confession of faith is because we want the entire church to be united around clear statements of where we stand on biblical truth so there's no ambiguity. And I think that the reason that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put this confession right here is the same thing. Paul is, is reminding Timothy, you need to be united, Ephesian church, Timothy with you as pastor, around doctrinal truth that's very clear it's a summary statement and describes who Jesus is. And so I get really nervous and leery when people say, no creed but the Bible, let's just believe the Bible. And why do we have to have a statement of faith? Well, you need to have a statement of faith, number one, to clearly identify what you believe the Bible teaches. And number two, it's a unifier. Uh, people can come together and say, this is what we believe about the doctrine of God. This is what we believe about sin. This is what we believe about God's sovereignty. This is what we believe about the Trinity. This is what we believe about the personal work of Jesus. This is what we believe about the Holy Spirit. This is what we believe about salvation, about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about uh, eternal security, about end times. Um, these are clarifying, defining statements that help a church function in a healthy manner so that there's no ambiguity. I think people don't like ambiguity. People, I found, want to know exactly what you believe. Tell us what you believe and why you believe it, and then we'll make a decision whether we want to join in on that. But if you're fuzzy, if you're nebulous, if you're kind of um, wishy-washy, you're not helping. And so I would say if you're a pastor listening to this, or you're a young seminary student, or you're an elder um, make sure you clearly articulate on your website, through your new members class, in your preaching and teaching, what you believe. And don't be afraid or ashamed to tell people, this is what we believe. We've lost people over the years at Emmanuel. We have a new members class where we go through seven weeks and we share exactly what we believe on key doctrinal issues. And here's what I say on the very first week. And I just lay the cards on the table. I say, listen, if you have a problem with baptism by immersion, if you have a problem with the absolute authority of God's word, if you have a problem with eternal security, if you have a problem with God's sovereignty and salvation, and you have a problem with males being the leaders in the church and the home, Emmanuel's probably not the church for you. There are great churches in our area that don't have the same beliefs we have on some of these things that you might be more happy or more comfortable in. And so we're unapologetic about what we believe. It's when churches kind of hide what they believe or, or they're not sure what they believe and they're wishy-washy, that's where it's not healthy. 
Um, we've had people come and they'll ask me questions or they'll listen to a sermon once and they realize, you know, this is not the church for me. And so instead of trying to water down what we believe or change it every time, um, depending on the, you know, who comes in, do we, do we change our doctrine depending on this and that? No, we stick with who we are as, as, as Emmanuel Baptist Church. And this new statement of faith is a clear way for us to articulate that. And so again, this is a transitional passage of scripture. Paul has just spent time talking about a healthy church. It's a praying church. It's an evangelistic church. It's a church where men and women understand their roles and are taking leadership and and they're living holy lives. You've got qualified leaders and elders and deacons and you're a church that holds fast to the truth. So Paul inserts this little section here with this doctrinal creed to remind them that they need to be a healthy church focused on the centrality of Christ and the gospel. And then for our next podcast, we're going to move into chapter 4 where Paul's going to go back and address these false teachers, these instigators who were causing problems for Timothy and the church in Ephesus. Well, I hope you have enjoyed listening to this more, uh, this briefer uh, podcast on 1 Timothy chapter 3. We will reconvene the next time I have an opportunity to do a podcast, and we'll dive right into chapter 4 as we continue through the book of 1 Timothy for this summer. Um, If you want to give us a positive review and rating on iTunes, we would highly appreciate that. If you would like to share Understanding Christianity with your friends and family and people that you think may benefit from this, please share this on your social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want more information, you can go to seancole.com. To get my contact information, if you'd like to contact me by email, you can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Um, All of those ways you can get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you. You can give us ideas on future topics that we might address. And so I hope you're having a great summer. I pray that you're walking closely with the Lord. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. And as always, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.